Have you ever gotten pulled over for speeding and immediately started to hatch excuses in your mind about why the officer should let you off the hook? Uh, perhaps like me, you've come up or used with one of the following. Oh, I didn't realize I was going that fast. I'm running really late for an important appointment. I was just following the flow of traffic. That's my personal favorite go-to. Shucks, I sure didn't see that speed limit sign, officer. I apologize. My, my speedometer said I was only going 45. Are you sure your radar is accurate? Now, friends, if you're a good manipulator or if you happen to run into an officer that day that's in a good mood, I suppose there's a possibility that he'll let you off with a warning. He'll bypass what, what would have been truly just a ticket in favor of arbitrary mercy. I think this is how a lot of people think about their relationship with and accountability to the Lord. Well, something like this. Surely if God exists, he won't actually judge me for my sins. I mean, after all, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I mean, I know a lot of my friends are way worse than I am. And I, after all, I'm just going along with the flow of traffic. I'm just living life like everyone else is. How can God judge me for living in the way that is best for me. Uh, that's how many think God should act, since that's how they want him to act. But friends, the reality is that God reveals about, him, that God reveals about himself in his word is that he is not at all like your friendly neighborhood cop who might overlook justice every now and then based on how he feels that day. His standard is not based on our feelings or our thoughts about the way he should act. Rather, his standard for our lives is governed by his own perfect righteousness and holiness. The clear message of the scripture is that God must judge the rebellion of mankind, and he will judge that all are without excuse. Friends, this is the sobering message of our passage today that we come to in Romans 1. So would you please turn there with me, Romans chapter 1. Our text today is verses 18 to 23. It's on page 939 of the Bible underneath the seats. If you need a Bible, grab one, turn to page 939, and you'll be ready to go. Friends, today we're moving into the main body of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, the last two weeks we've been in his introduction in verses 1 to 17, where Paul introduced kind of both his gospel theology and his desires for ministry that flowed out of the gospel. Paul longed, he says, his, his desire was to preach the gospel in Rome, both to believers and unbelievers alike. He had an unwavering confidence in the gospel of Jesus because in this message of the crucified and risen king, God has packed his power to rescue sinners. In the gospel, God reveals his saving righteousness, particularly when people respond to it with the empty hands of faith in Jesus, saying, Lord, I, I can't save myself from my sin and from your wrath. I need you to rescue me. It's the righteous who live by faith. As I mentioned last week, Romans 1, 16 to 17 are, are kind of like Paul's topic sentence for the rest of the book. It sets the agenda for the rest of the letter. In fact, starting in verse 18, Paul launches into a prolonged explanation of why the saving righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is only given to those who respond to it through faith in Christ. And he's really going to run just one particular argument, friends, from, from chapter 1, verses eight, verse 18, all the way 
to chapter 3, verse 20. And here's the gist or the summary of Paul's argument that's going to last through these next couple chapters. Here's why all people must rely on Jesus to save them. All people have sinned against God. Therefore, God will judge all people fairly and righteously. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew who had the built-in advantages of, of God's covenant and God's law, or if you're a Gentile pagan. No one has a moral leg to stand on for righteousness. All, Paul says, both Jew and Gentiles have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Paul shows us, friends, I think, how necessary the good news of God's salvation is because of how grim the bad news is of our rebellion. Every single human being is under sin's power and God's wrath to such a degree that only God's mighty power unleashed in the gospel can rescue them from his wrath. Friends, I know in many ways this is going to be a hard message to grapple with. Really, the next few sermons are, will not be easy to preach, and I'm sure in some ways not easy to hear. Um, but I would urge you, especially if you're not a Christian, to consider this. Love always deals in the truth. Always. If you were seeing, for instance, an oncologist after a biopsy, it would be profoundly unloving for that doctor to lie to you about a tumor that was malignant. The best way for the doctor to love you is to tell you the truth so that you can start getting the treatment that you need. In the same way, friends, it would not be loving of our God not to show us how serious the disease of our sin is before Him. It wouldn't be loving of, of us here at the church to kind of just skip over the hard passages that deal honestly with the, the human condition and God's response to it. We must deal in the truth out of a heart of love. So that's what we're going to do in today's sermon and over the next few. Our text this morning again is Romans 1, 18 to 23. Friends, I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Verse 16 to kind of catch the context again. Paul writes, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteousness shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, here's the main idea of these verses that I trust will be the main idea of our sermon text or our sermon today. Here's the main idea. You don't have a legitimate excuse for your idolatry and therefore no natural way to avoid God's wrath. None of us, not you, not me, have a legitimate excuse for our idolatry 
or false worship, and therefore no natural way. That's just my way of saying no way on our own to avoid God's righteous wrath. Two points this morning. Number one, the undeniable wrath of God. Number two, the inexcusable idolatry of mankind. The undeniable wrath of God, the inexcusable idolatry of mankind. Beloved, I pray that that today God might sober us about the realities of sin and judgment and that in turn he might thrill us with the realities of his grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. Number one, the undeniable wrath of God. Paul starts out with an uppercut, doesn't he, in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I don't know if there's any more, any topic more offensive in our world today than this idea of God's wrath. Friends, we live in a, in a world, in a culture where the self reigns. What I want, what I feel is the supreme good. And therefore, the only way for you to love me is to, to affirm what I want and what I feel. And telling me anything to the contrary, simply, well, it's bigoted and it's, and it's hateful. So, so this idea of a God with a, with a fixed moral standard within himself who will judge humanity for transgression of, against that standard, friends, that, that, that idea is not merely viewed with suspicion or amusement anymore, but with contempt. A God who judges what I think is good, well, that God seems like a moral monster. And many people today just try to avoid thinking altogether about this topic, about God's wrath, a God with whom they will give an account. If they believe in God, they'd, they'd kind of rather picture him as kind of a, of a, of a Santa Claus figure, huh? a harmless cosmic grandpa whose, whose job it is to make us feel good about ourselves. And others try to push the thought of of God's wrath to the margins of their minds by, by doing good works to merit his love. Surely God grades on, grades on a curve, right? And it'll turn out okay for me because of the things I'm doing. Well, one of the things that Romans 1, 18 to 23 does is correct false views of God. And the scripture could not be clearer because of man's rebellion against God, what Paul calls the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against them. Friends, because every human after the fall is hardwired to live life for themselves and not for the glory of God, God must respond to such evil with justice. You know, Paul, Paul here is not kind of functioning like your, uh, your trusted financial advisor who's uh, surveying the market conditions and giving you his best advice, his best prognostication of, of the future of our economy. No, Paul is stating an objective, undeniable reality. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Friends, nothing arouses God's wrath but sin. But sin always arouses God's wrath. And that is not an encouraging message, is it? Since our very nature is saturated by sin, let alone our thoughts and our words and our actions. You know, the, the undeniable reality of God's wrath, it just, it just his righteous anger, it, it jumps off the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So from the moment Adam rebelled against God in the garden and, and God pronouncing the sentence of death, 
upon him and separation from him to the moment in Revelation where we see the wrath of the Lamb poured out upon the wickedness of mankind. The scripture is not fuzzy about this. God will deal with humanity's rebellion against him in wrath. So, what is the wrath of God? What is it? How should we think about it? I think some Christians are uneasy to talk about this topic because they think that God's wrath is kind of like a bad temper. You know, God's just losing it up in heaven. He must be like Disney's red-faced anger character in the movie In and Out, right? You know, the guy who's just uncontrollably combustible. Just one wrong move and the, the lid pops off and the fire bursts out. You know, friends, that, that may be how we express anger, but not our Lord. Our anger is so often irrational and uncontrollable. It wreaks havoc in our relationships. And frankly, this is how many cultures picture their gods. And think of the Greek and Roman pantheons, which is, of course, the religious context of, in which Paul wrote this letter. Read the mythologies. The gods were, were hateful and vindictive and capricious in how they acted and reacted, both against their worshipers and against other rival gods. The top gods in the pantheon were said to have achieved their power by their vengeful anger. But beloved, God's wrath is completely free of that type of destructive quality. The Bible describes God's wrath as his settled opposition against sin. It's his good and righteous response to our rebellion against him. It's his holy refusal to condone evil and his just judgment against it. Friends, you might say it this way. God's wrath is the judicial response of his holiness. God's wrath is the judicial response of his holiness. It is always just and right. God's wrath toward our unrighteousness is righteous. Think about it this way. Would a God who took as much pleasure in sin as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who responded casually to evil and injustice in, the, in this world be a God worth worshiping? Uh, surely not. No, God's wrath is a necessary and good result of his moral perfection. And as Christians, friends, we ought to praise God that he's, he's too loving not to deal with with wrongdoing. He's too holy to let the spurning of his love go unchecked. He's too righteous to miscarry justice for every human wrong. Have you ever noticed that it seems like some of the folks who are so turned off by this idea of the wrath of God are the same ones who cry very loudly for justice to be done in the public square? Have you noticed that? Now certainly they might have a skewed view of what Justice truly is at times. They might demand equity in unjust ways that happens. But nonetheless, they have a desire for justice. And friends, that is a good and right instinct. Baked into the human psyche is a high sense of justice. We want wrong to be accounted for. I promise you, my three-year-old son has a high sense of justice. I didn't have to take him through the, the toddler version of a philosophy or an ethics course and teach him about justice for him to have a sense of justice. No, if Bubby or Sissy wrong him, he wants me to bring the hammer down. <laughs> Friends, where do you think that instinct comes from? God is embedded into our moral DNA as his image bearers this sense of his justice. 
If there weren't such a thing as the wrath of God, there would be no ultimate consequence for sin and wrongdoing and justice of any type. We think that somehow, you know, we'll make God more attractive by soft-pedaling his wrath. Friends, that doesn't make him more attractive. It's not the presence of God's wrath that makes him a moral monster, but the absence of it surely would. A God who has no regard for upholding what is truly good and right and dealing with what is truly wicked and false is not a God worth worshiping. By the way, notice that Paul did not write, for the wrath of God will be revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed. Present tense. There's no question that God's wrath will be fully poured out and fully demonstrated at the the final judgment when Christ Jesus returns. There's no question about the biblical reality of eternal punishment in hell. But Paul here is not talking primarily about something future, but about something current. Even now, he says, God is pouring out his wrath upon humanity. Say, John, how is this happening? How is God wrathful even now? Well, look at verse 24. We'll come to it more next week. Look at verse 24. Because of the idolatry of humanity, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Friends, in other words, a major component of God's just wrath is to give humanity what it wants, to give humans what they crave. He doesn't restrain them. He, he grants them the corruption they so desire. And of course, it's those very sins that culminate and culminate and culminate in judgment on the great and final day of his wrath, when human sin will be judged fully and finally. I know this is not the type of message that wins friends and influences people. It's not the type of news that tickles the ears. But beloved, there is no gospel without it. If we water down or we eliminate God's bad news, we will, by nature, water down or eliminate God's good news. There are so many downstream effects when we soft-pedal God's wrath for human sin. Let me just give you a couple. Okay, downplaying God's wrath trivializes sin. If God's wrath burns against all sin, small or big, quote unquote consequential or not, then we should take all sin seriously. We should seek to kill it in our lives. If you're in Christ today, if you're united to Jesus by faith, and then we remember that, that our sin is so serious that God poured out his wrath upon his own son in order to free us and cleanse us from the very sins that we so easily tolerate in our lives. The undeniable reality of God's wrath ought to sober us. It should be like spiritual smelling salts that wake us up out of spiritual stupor. Take sin seriously. Downplaying God's wrath also hurts our evangelism. When we leave out the wrath of God out of our evangelistic presentations, we might be tempted to encourage people to do things like, quote, invite Jesus into their life or ask Jesus into their heart, which, friends, may result in true conversion for some as long as what's going on in their life is real and they're giving their life to Christ. But, but for others, such a presentation without the wrath of God might gloss over the fact that their real need, our friend or family member's real need is not to extend Jesus an invitation, 
but to bow their knee to him in repentance and to trust in him alone to rescue them from God's eternal wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The implication is that no one can naturally avoid it, which Paul's just going to make explicit here in the coming verses. There's no escaping this undeniable reality. Number two, the inexcusable idolatry of mankind. Inexcusable idolatry of mankind. So again, Paul's point here is that everyone must respond to the gospel by faith because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the sin of everyone. And now in the rest of our text this morning, he's going to prove the case. Okay? So we might ask the question, you know, after verse 18, is our sin really this bad to warrant God's wrath? And, And really, what about those who have never heard the gospel? Shouldn't they be excused from the conversation? Maybe God will take their best intentions and and count them as righteousness on the last day. Well, let's see how the scripture frames it for us. Look at verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Friends, did you follow Paul's argument? Okay, let's just take a flyby of it again, okay, just in case you missed it. In 18a, Paul says that God's wrath is revealed against all people. Why? 18b, all suppress the truth. Well, how do we know that that's what all humans do? 19a, because all have been given a certain knowledge of God. 19b and 20, God has made himself known to them through the creation of the world. And as a result, 20b, they have no excuse for suppressing the truth. And then he explains further, for although they knew God, verse 21, they didn't honor or glorify him as God, and instead their thinking became futile and foolish because they ceased worshiping the true God and turned to idols. So friends, the first thing that Paul wants us to know about why the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven is that humanity left to themselves suppress the truth about God. And and what truth is that? Is it the truth in the Bible? No, Paul is talking clearly about a certain truth revealed in creation and the things that God has made. Theologians call this general revelation because it's available to all or natural revelation because it's from nature or creation. When Paul's not talking about specific or saving revelation that God has given us in his word and in Christ Jesus, but truth about himself that he has made readily available to every human being who lives in his world. Verse 18 says that the truth that people suppress is what can be known about God. Friends, even though all truth about God is only knowable by grace to some, some truth about God is readily available to all. All truth that can be known about God is only available by grace to some, but some truth about God in creation is readily available to all. Verse 19 says that what can be known about God is plain. It's clear. It's unmistakable. God's not playing monkey in the middle with this truth, right? Just keeping it out of our our grasp, just barely. No. How do we know? 
God has shown it to us through what he's made. We, I mean, we rehearsed this in our call to worship this morning, right? From Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims, shouts his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There it is. So, so what is this knowledge or truth that creation proclaims? Well, verse 20 says that it's, it's God's invisible attributes being visibly displayed in his world, namely his eternal power and divine nature. You know what? God's, God's creation doesn't merely proclaim God's existence, that he exists. It, sure, it certainly does that, but that's not all it does. Creation not only broadcasts God's existence, but something about his, his nature. It tells us who he is. Let's just go out and take a hike. Not, not now, but go out and take a hike this week, and you will be reminded of this fact. The majesty of the mountains that surround this valley point to the majesty of their creator. The beauty of the sunrise each day hints at the beautiful perfection of the sun's maker. The richness of the colors in the flowers and trees cue us to the fact that an indescribably good God causes them to bloom at their appointed time. Friends, can you even believe that cacti exists? I mean, seriously, things grow in a desert wasteland. It's crazy. And not, and not only does this monstrous prickly thing grow, it sprouts beautiful flowers every spring. So surely that surprise, that surprise that the cactus gives us each year is a result of a God who delights to surprise us with his kindness. How in the world does a cell hold together? How did protons and electrons and neutrons all come to be, while all the while coordinating perfectly with one, or one another to form a cell, which then forms matter? Oh, surely this intricacy points to the fathomless wisdom of our God. Look into the night sky, and you'll see something of the power and divine nature of our God. The few hundred stars that we can see with our, our naked eye, they sing God's praise. But astronomers estimate that there are between 100 and 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. At the same time, they estimate that the observable universe contains somewhere between two trillion galaxies, each containing billions of stars and planets. The speed of light is 186, 282 miles an hour. The closest star that we can see with our eyes, Proxima Centauri, is over four light years away. While the most distant galaxy ever observed with the advanced telescope is, is estimated to be 13.8 billion light years away. I don't even have a category for that. And if you don't feel pretty small right now, something is wrong. The size of our universe loudly proclaims the infinite greatness of our God. A few months ago, my brother-in-law, who's uh, not a Christian, texted Lindsay and me and uh, linked an article that, that 
gives the story that of recent happenings of, that astronomers and cosmologists are just confounded when they're looking at the data and the images that have been coming through this new James Webb Space Telescope. All the, tail, the telltale markers that should be proving, without a doubt, the Big Bang Theory, they're just simply not there. And instead of the expansion of the universe slowing down, it seems to be speeding up, which of course cuts against every law of physics that we understand. And friends, I am no expert in astrophysics, but I, re I replied to Jason, I said, how cool would it be if God created the world to infinitely expand in order to reflect his infinitude? Surely the mysteries of the universe should lay us low in humility when we realize that these mysteries reflect the mysterious and limitless awesomeness of our great God and King. His eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived in the things that he has made. And yet, what does mankind do? We suppress that revelation, according to verse 18. We, we kind of quarantine it off from our minds and hearts. Uh, Lindsay and I were watching a movie the other day in which a, a toxicology report of a guy's blood alcohol level, it was a damning piece of evidence in, in, the, in the plot line of the movie. And guess what the lawyer did? He suppressed it. He suppressed that report on a technicality. The evidence could not be presented in court and contribute toward the verdict. Friends, that's exactly what Paul is saying that we humans do with God's truth and revelation and in creation. We suppress it from being able to take root in our souls and instead keep worshiping ourselves or other idols that we erect. Whether consciously or subconsciously, every human naturally tamps down the truth that should cause our hearts to erupt in worship. Of course, Paul's not saying that you can know the precise time and date when you did that for the first time. The point is not the timing, but the reality. He's saying God has stitched his greatness into the, the fabric of the realities of this world, and we in our rebellion seek to unstitch that reality and suppress the truth. The conclusion is, is clear in verse 20. So, here's the result. Here's the conclusion. So they are without excuse. In other words, friends, the, the wrath of God is revealed rightly and justly against us. Aside from the grace of God in Christ, we have no defensible, of defensible appeal before the judge to excuse why we suppress the truth that he has so plainly revealed to us. Friends, on the day of God's judgment, you're not going to be able to blame your parents or your dysfunctional family, or your poor education, or the, the one in your life who's hurt you so much. You won't be able to excuse your sin because of financial pressures, or some sort of poor physical health condition, or a hard marriage. You can't assume God won't judge you because you lived in the wrong part of the world, or you, you weren't sufficiently taught the scripture. All those things are hard, but none of them excuse us for pushing away the God whose glory is seen clearly all around us. Here's what you have to come to grips with. This is a hard reality. The knowledge of God through creation is not enough to save us, but it is enough to damn us. The knowledge of God in creation is not enough to save us, but it is enough to damn us. The truth that God reveals in his creation isn't sufficient for our salvation, 
but it is sufficient for our condemnation because it proves in real time that we humans, by nature, are idolaters through and through. That's how we suppress the truth. We suppress the worship of God by worshiping something else altogether. Look at verses 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Instead of praising God, friends, and glorifying God alone and, th and thanking him when we observe his world, we have done the exact opposite. We have turned to idols of our own making. Of course, the enormously massive truth that Paul assumes here is that God is infinitely worthy of all of that honor and all of that thanks. He is worthy of every ounce of our soul's allegiance and passion and desire. He and he alone is worthy. You realize, don't you, that God did not have to create the world? He didn't, nothing compelled God to create the world. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't deficient. Rather, friends, God created the world out of the overflow of his love and goodness within the Godhead. Our God, Father, Son, and Spirit is infinitely satisfied and joyful and loving in himself. And yet, as Edwards wrote, it is the nature of a fountain to overflow. It's like the goodness and love of our God spilled over in the creation of the world so that we too, his creatures, might know and experience his goodness and joy and love fully. God's glory and your joy and satisfaction are not competitors. They are married to each other theologically. The failure to glorify God isn't just wrong, it's tragic because we in our sin have cut ourselves off from the only true source of goodness and life. Jumping over the end of verse 21 and 22 for just a second, hopping over to verse 23, Paul tells us what we humans do. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. We've made this horrific exchange. Instead of being satisfied with the glory of God, we have, we have sought fulfillment in other things that God has made. We, we, we've traded in the feast, right? The, the rich feast of God's glory and eternal joy for the scraps of false gods. Paul's language here reflects several different places in the biblical story. I think, first of all, Genesis 1 to 3 where we learn that mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. He was fashioned by God with a distinct purpose. We are, were created to image God, to reflect his glorious character in the world. God created us to represent his kingship over all the earth in perfect relationship with him. But tragically, Adam and Eve exchanged their glory, which was God's glory reflected in them. They exchanged their glory for the glory of God's creature, the snake. Instead of submitting to God's word, they submitted to Satan's word. And friends, immediately, their heart, which had been so full of light in the glories of God, grew dark with evil that in all humanity, humanity following in their wake, the same has happened. At the very center of every person where the knowledge of God and creation should be embraced and loved and adored, instead, there is a settled darkness 
that can only be penetrated by God's power in the gospel of Jesus. Ever since the garden, our hearts have been factories of idols, as Calvin wrote. We just churn them out, one after the other, after the other, after the other. So later in salvation history, another text that I think Paul's reflecting on, uh, Moses met with God on Mount Sinai after God powerfully delivered his people from Egypt. And what happened? While he was on the mountain, Aaron led the people to fashion a calf out of gold and say of that golden calf, this is the God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Psalm 106.20, reflecting on Exodus 32, says this, they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They exchanged their glory, God's glory, which was their glory for an image of an ox. What an absurd and tragic exchange that we make. We walk away from the glory of our creator for the glory of the creatures that he has made. (laughs) Instead of worshiping the God who made the sun, whole societies have worshiped the sun. Instead of worshiping the God who fashioned the cow, whole world religions worship the cow. Instead of worshiping the Lord whose awesome sovereignty designed human beings to image him, we idolize sinful humans. And you can see this inverted absurdity of idolatry there in verse 23. See the downward spiral? You see it? We're not content to to stop with worshiping other human beings at the pinnacle of his creation. No, we death spiral lower and lower and lower throughout the animal order all the way down to the reptiles that crawl on the ground. The propensity of our hearts toward idolatry isn't just a thing of ancient cultures, is it? It's not even reserved for the false religions of our day. Our false gods here in the West might be more sophisticated than a carving made out of wood, but friends, a sophisticated idol is still an idol. In the West, our own autonomy and our pleasure and our self-affirmation is God. We bow to the self. We worship sex and money and power and success and comfort. Things that are wonderful gifts if utilized for God's purposes and according to God's command, but things that make horrible gods. Things that can never satisfy our hearts and that diminish our souls with every indulgent act of worship we give them. We act as if the world revolves around us. And even worse, the ingratitude of our hearts reveals that we think the universe or God or whoever owes us what we want. We are owed a good living and good health an X number of kids and a wife that has dinner on the table when we get home from work or a husband that dotes on me at every turn. We are owed those things. Friends, if you want to do a litmus test of your heart this morning, ask yourself these questions. What will you sin to get? What will you sin to get? And what will cause you to sin if you don't get it? What will you sin to get? What will cause you to sin if you don't get it? That's your idol. And just like Israel of old, we become what we worship. We resemble what we revere. Because we've traded in the worth of God for the futility of idols, we humans become like them. That's what verses 21 and 22 describe. Like our dark idols, we become darkened in our foolishness. Look at the text. 
Like our worthless gods, we become futile and worthless in our thinking. In the same moment that we revel in our wisdom and ingenuity and our advanced thinking, we proclaim just how foolish we really are. We have traded away eternal glory for eternal wrath. Friends, God's wrath only makes sense in the context of human idolatry when we realize that such treachery against our infinitely good Father and infinitely holy King warrants an infinitely and eternal punishment, an infinite and eternal punishment. It's not merely that we do wrong things, is it? It's that we haven't honored the glory of God. We've not reverenced the holiness of God. We've not admired the greatness of God, and we've not praised the power and sovereignty of God. We've not prized the grace of God, and so on and so on. Friends, no wonder we are all without excuse. Perhaps one of the biggest pushbacks against the exclusivity of Christ for salvation is the question, well, what about the good and noble savage on the deserted island who never has a chance to hear the the gospel message? How could God judge him for rejecting a gospel that he's never had access to? Well, friends, the the teaching of Scripture from Romans 1 is not that God's wrath is revealed because all men reject the gospel but because all men have failed to glorify God as he deserves. The knowledge that they have about God in his creation condemns them. All humanity deserves God's wrath. So the right question is not, how could God pour out his wrath on those who have never heard the gospel, but how could this holy God pour out his mercy upon any of us? Now for some application. First of all, to non-Christians in the room today, friends, thanks for being here. I know this is a, is a tough word, but I trust you'll understand that it's a true word. I think the clear application for you as someone who's not in Christ is to flee from the wrath of God by running to Jesus in faith and repentance. Don't discount this message as antiquated or out of touch If your conscience has kind of awakened today, friends, respond to it. Don't put it back to sleep with excuses about why this just doesn't apply to you or why you'll be okay. God must deal with your sin. But praise be to God, he's made a way for your sin to be dealt with through the sacrifice of another. The bad news does not have to be bad news for you, friend. It can prepare the way for the best news you've ever heard. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross averts the wrath of God for sinners like you and me because the sinless one died in the place of all those who would trust in him. He took the wrath of God. He took the judgment that we deserved and in so doing, he satisfied God's wrath forever. He fulfilled the demands of justice by giving his life and love to save you from the wrath of God and to bring you back into relationship with him. So if you'll trust Jesus today to save you, friend, God will justify you. He will declare you the unrighteous sinner to be righteous like Jesus. He'll forgive you and he'll accept you as his child. And in an instant, you'll go from being a child of wrath to being a child of God. 
On the third day, Jesus rose powerfully from the dead, proving that God had accepted his sacrifice for sins. The wrath of God had no permanent hold on Jesus because Jesus was entirely undeserving of God's wrath. And even now he reigns as the Lord and King and one day will return to judge and to reign. Don't wait. Don't make the mistake of thinking your conscience will awaken tomorrow or the next day again. If it's awake now, come to Jesus. Today's the day of salvation. You can be confident even this morning that you were saved from the wrath of God. You simply make a break. You make a break with your allegiance to sin. You confess it to God and you trust in Christ alone to rescue you. And you commit to follow him by, with your life. You turn from your sin and you trust Jesus. Now for believers. Beloved, the, the severity and the certainty of God's wrath ought to deepen our thankfulness, our awe for God's mercy in Christ. If you're in Christ this morning, you need to know this and remember this. There is not a drop of wrath left for you. Not a drop. It's not like God, you know, God's got this, this big cup of wrath, right? The image that in, in, the, in the Bible, this big cup of wrath for unbelievers and, and then just a few little drops for believers. No, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. He drained it when he bled and died for us. Listen to Romans 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Friends, God may discipline, he may discipline you for sin like a father does his son in love, but that discipline will not be in wrath, but in full grace. Let this truth ignite the oven of your soul with a deeper love and worship of our God. Second application for believers, friends, we must take the gospel to those who are under God's wrath. We must. This text should kindle within us a missionary zeal when we realize that God's revelation in creation cannot save anyone, but only render everyone culpable for their sin. We must get the gospel out to those who have never heard. Who, who among us might go? Who among us might mobilize and send and give and support? Friends, understanding the wrath of God should fuel missions and evangelism. Finally, beloved, don't, don't let a passage like this pass without taking stock of your life a little bit. Is your mind being shaped consistently by right thoughts about God as he's revealed himself in his word? Are your affections growing in love for him and allegiance to him and a passion for the things of God? You know, if, if the answer is no, the answer is not to try harder. Like, you know, you know your soul will, your, will worship God when you just really try hard. Now, that, that's not the way to go. Your soul will worship what you set your gaze on consistently. If what you're constantly putting in front of your soul, friends, are the glories of money and sex and success and family and all the rest, well, that's what you're going to worship. These lesser glories will capture your soul because that's what you're beholding. 
But if you consistently and relentlessly set before your soul the blazing glory of God, both in his creation and in the gospel, friends, your soul will ignite to worship God. Behold our God, seated on the throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We know that it is true. It is self-attesting in its truthfulness. Lord, the witness of the scripture bears, it's consistent with the witness of our, of our souls. We see the glories around us. We know something of you. That you are a great creator. You are a great and powerful king. You are the God who deserves all glory and honor and thanks. Oh, Father, I pray and, and ask that if there is someone here today who doesn't know you through faith in Christ, that today they might indeed run away from your wrath by running to Christ. Oh, Father, may they shield themselves in his love and through his work. Lord, we thank you for the beauty and power of the gospel that the wrath of God has been satisfied in Christ, even as we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, just remembering that fact should infuse us with joy. And then for us believers, Lord, I pray that you would, you would cause us to have a deeper gratitude, a deeper awe, a deeper thankfulness for your great mercy to us, and that that, that mercy that we are, we're setting our minds on might fuel our evangelism, it might fuel holy lives. Oh Lord, that we would have a sense of sobriety about who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you might shape our church even through this, this hard message this morning. We ask this, these things in Jesus' name. Amen.